the Bible says that like we need to rely on God in times of sorrow and hardship. Well, I was raised Christian, um, very strong um, Christian background in my family. Um, my whole family attended the same church growing up. And I mean, like my dad and grandparents had been members at that church for 30 years. So um, my dad was an elder at the church. We went to church every Sunday, did Sunday school. My mom led Sunday school sometimes. Um, and it was really great having that kind of community growing up because when we would go camping, we would go camping with people from church and um, I had friends at church. And then um, even within our neighborhood, we had we knew who our neighbors were, that they didn't go to the same church as us, but they were Christians and we would hang out with them. So even growing up, like the friends I would hang out with outside of school, I wouldn't like call up a friend and say, hey, do you want to come over? I would just walk behind my house to my best friend's house because I knew he was home and we would play together. Um, their family is who I would hang out with the most out of everyone, me and my two younger sisters and then Michael and his younger sister. Like halfway through my sixth grade year, um, we got a call one night that, um, my best friend, Michael, who um, I had spent my whole childhood, like growing up with, hanging out with. I didn't hang out with friends from my elementary school because I wanted to hang out with Michael and his sister. Um, uh, we got a call one night that Michael had um, accidentally stepped in front of a train and, and was killed instantly. And that was extremely traumatic for me. Um, I think that was the first time in my life that like death had happened and I had really understood the magnitude of it, especially since this is a kid only a couple years younger than me. He's my best friend and now he's gone. And I just remember that night just crying for the rest of the night. I remember exactly what I did the next day, what I wore. Um, and it was really hard on me and my sisters and just our whole neighborhood kind of fell apart because um, we had even more neighborhood kids that we would all hang out together. But after Michael died, he, we kind of just stopped hanging out with each other. So when I went to college, it was kind of just from what I had seen growing up and then the friends I met in college, it was kind of like a worldly expectation of like, getting drunk is something that you do. Because I knew my parents had done it and other people had done it. So I'm like, okay, this is what I have to do in college. And um, so I was trying to fill this hole in my heart of like having close friendships, but also like all my friends are getting drunk well, this is how, like, this is our friendship now. We go out together, we party two or three times a week, we get drunk, and then, um, like, this is this is who we are, this is our group. Um, and uh, so that was like a constant weekly thing. Um, but I knew every night when I would come home and I'd be laying in bed really drunk, I would pray asking God for forgiveness because I knew that it was a sin. 
Um, but I also knew that I didn't really want to stop drinking because I like hanging out with my friends and I want to party with them. I want to get drunk with them and have fun. Um, so that was just like a cycle every single week. And then, um, I think it was my sophomore year. I felt like, you know what? I really need to take a break from getting drunk. I'm going to prioritize the campus ministry I'm a part of and spend more time with them. And I'm going to like swear off alcohol for the semester. And so I remember during that semester, I I think I was like month two or three into being um, completely sober and not having a sip of alcohol and going to one of the parties that my friends were hosting. And I remember walking into the room and seeing everyone really drunk and just like dancing and um, just kind of out of it. And I remember walking in and being like, this is weird. I feel uncomfortable. Um, looking back now, I know that uh, it's because there was so, like, Satan was in that room. I, I know that that's the feeling I was feeling now. But I remember being like, I'm going to stay for five minutes and I'm going to leave. And uh, during that, like, three, four month period where I was sober and I didn't have any alcohol, I could tell I was getting closer to God. I felt like he was clearly speaking to me in those moments. Um, and then my three to four months, the semester was over. And I'm like, cool, I can get back to getting drunk with my friends. And it was just got back into it. Um, and then it wasn't until, so I had two more years of college and just the constant cycle of drinking and praying for forgiveness, getting drunk, praying for forgiveness. Um, and even into post-college adulthood, uh, that just continued with, it, it just felt like this is what you do as an adult. You get drunk with your friends on the weekends. And um, I started smoking hookah, um, staying up really late. And it was a six-year process of God working on my heart. Um, so it wasn't until New Year's Eve of 2017, so 2017 to 2018, um, that I got really drunk New Year's Eve and then woke up beginning of 2018 with a hangover that lasted two days. And I remember just laying on the couch and during this time, I had already like started going to church again, um, like 2016, 2017. And I was always praying like, God, please change my heart. Um, I know that this is a sin and I know I, I shouldn't want to drink, but I still do. Um, Cause I want to have a good time with my friends. Um, but I also like, please forgive me of this sin. Um, and I just remember waking up New Year's Day of 2018 and laying on the couch so hungover from being drunk the night before and thinking to myself, God doesn't want me missing out on the world that he's created because I'm hungover on the couch. And on top of that, God doesn't want me to view his world through a drunken stupor. He wants us to enjoy the fresh air and the trees and 
be out there giving glory to him. And in that moment, I, I felt that God had completely changed my heart. It was a from 2010 to 2018, an eight-year battle um, until I, I feel like the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit, God gave me understanding of, yes, drunkenness is a sin, but now your heart understands why. And I haven't desired to get drunk since that time. God can change your heart. People always say that, and then you experience it, and you're like, whoa, <laughs> and it's really cool. And, uh... Yeah, I, I, all that time I was looking for friendships to fill the hole in my heart. The only thing that ever was able to make that happen was Jesus. And um, I, I thank God that he pulled me out when he did, that, that he was chasing after me with wanting to bring me back to church, bringing me to church, just inserting himself into my life and then me accepting him into my life. Um, not just saying like, not today, Satan, but like, yes, Jesus, not just going to turn away, but I'm also going to go in the opposite direction towards the Lord. So I know even when I do sin, I'm forgiven. And that's why I keep praying. Cause like, I knew that I didn't want that desire to sin. And yet I was still sinning. So even now, there may be ways in which I'm sinning that I am unaware of. And so I pray for that awareness. God, reveal my sin to me. I pray for forgiveness because I don't know how I'm sinning, but I want that to be revealed to me and I want to ask forgiveness for that. Well, good morning, Trinity Church. I want to thank Erin for sharing her testimony with us. It's been so powerful to hear these stories each week. And this is week three of our Secrets series and next week we'll finish with uh, Cole's uh, secret, his story. And today I will be speaking from Proverbs chapter 23 uh, verses 29 through 35. Aaron's story gives us the perfect opportunity to talk about alcohol and to learn what the Bible teaches. So let's pray and then uh, let's read. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we thank you uh, for the truth of scripture. And we just pray that you would set anyone today free who has a dependency on alcohol and or any vice that they may struggle with and that you'd use Aaron's testimony um, to really uh, impact them and uh, bless them and help them. But Lord, just teach all of us, train all of us to follow you, to turn away from darkness and to turn towards your light. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Proverbs 23, starting in verse uh, 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. And goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart utter perverse things. 
You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of the mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. This is God's word. Now, Proverbs uh, was mostly written by King Solomon, who lived roughly a thousand years before Jesus. Solomon is considered the wisest king of Israel. He uh, is also famous for having lots of wives. And even with all his wisdom, Solomon's greatest blind spot was that for every wife he added, he also gained a mother-in-law. So in spite of that, it appears that Solomon was wise enough and humble enough to even integrate the teachings of otherwise men of his time. And this passage from Solomon is mocking a drunk person and painting a terrifying picture of being enslaved to drinking. It's not saying alcohol is inherently wrong or that the only option is complete abstinence. It's saying that the overconsumption is bad. Today, I want to give us the reasons and the keys to break free from any and all dependency on alcohol. To get there, we have to be open-minded. So right now, make a decision that you will be open-minded. We must open our minds more than ever before. Keep your mind as open as a 7-Eleven. If alcohol has been an issue for you, start this process, start hearing this with feelings of joy and hope that you can become the master of something that has previously mastered you. Jesus can show you the way. Before we dive into Proverbs, this passage we read, let's start more high level. Uh, so in Psalms uh, 104 verses 14 and 15, the Bible tells us that wine comes from God and that its purpose is to give us joy. It says, uh, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. So that's the first verse that's very important. And in contrast uh, to that verse, it describes alcohol in a positive way. In contrast uh, to the Bible, alcohol has often been vilified by some Christian groups. I believe the motive is probably good because, because of the tragic effects of alcohol. Uh, but it's just not right to lay that level of vilification at the feet of the Bible. So not only does Psalm 104 affirm that alcohol is okay and from God, but Jesus does as well. So the New Testament tells us that Jesus drank wine. So in Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, it says, uh, For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus was accused of being a drunkard because he drank alcoholic wine. And we also know that he turned water into wine, and it was high-quality fermented wine. Additionally, 
The Apostle Paul says that alcohol has medicinal benefits. And in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul says, uh, No longer drink only water, but also use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You know, now that I think about it, my sweet little old grandma actually drinks a lot of wine sometimes. So I guess I hadn't realized she had such a bad stomach problem. Um, but it's good to know that she's taking the Bible so seriously with that. So anyway, so those verses show the positive things about alcohol in the Bible. Now granted, these references only speak of wine. So surely none of this applies to wine coolers or mimosas or sangria or mulled wine, right? But of course, alas, with common sense, these things apply to all wine and also to, of course, beer and spirits as well, all alcohol. There are also some negative things the Bible says about alcohol. The Apostle Peter warns us of excess. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he writes this, uh, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. So the Apostle Paul again warns us that Christians' alcohol usage might also cause someone else uh, with less self-control to struggle. So in Romans 14, verse 21, uh, he says this. He says, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So we must be very sensitive uh, to those who are vulnerable to the grip of alcohol. So the Bible is okay with alcohol, but not with drunkenness. So these main verses from Proverbs they illuminate the truth about indulging in alcohol. They paint a picture for us. And in verse 29, we read, it says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And of course, the answer is in the next verse, it says, Those who tarry long over wine. Why is this the case? Why does excess alcohol lead to this? Well, alcohol is a toxin. Let that sink in. That's why it's called alcohol poisoning. Because if we drink too much of it, it's a toxin. It's, it's poisonous to us. It's a poison no matter the quantity. So in smaller amounts, the body can process the poison, right? But like any toxin, our bodies have a limit. For example, we can actually handle a certain amount of mercury, but too much mercury and you get permanent brain damage, actually. So alcohol is like mercury. For many, it doesn't take much for alcohol to be toxic. And the result is woefulness, sorrow, strife, complaining, avoidable injuries, tired eyes, eating dried pizza for breakfast. So these things listed here in Proverbs are kind of ancient vocabulary for a hangover. Now, even in moderation, alcohol adds very little to our lives. And don't miss this. This is key. It adds hardly anything to our lives. Even though the Bible says it can gladden the heart, we looked at that verse, it is not even the best source of gladness. 
Excess alcohol has devastating side effects. It exacerbates depression. It makes people more negative and more vulnerable. It creates more misery, more regret. And the medical benefits that are often touted about, especially wine, don't really stand up to scrutiny. Alcohol lowers your metabolism and simultaneously allows someone to eat an entire KFC family bucket. Not quite sure how that works, but it causes us to gain weight. It dehydrates us. Too much of it causes disease, bad skin, early aging, poor sleep. It makes some of us think that we can sing. And by removing our inhibitions, it makes us susceptible to bad decisions, like entering a karaoke competition. Now, verse 33 says this. It says, your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. And then in verse 34, we read it. It says it's like laying down in the midst of the sea. And if you've ever been, if you've ever drunk too much, you know exactly what this means. Uh, this even kind of feels somewhat comical reading this because we know it's completely true. Uh, but, you know, in reality, it's, it's actually not funny in reality because drunkenness is very costly. It can cost relationships and jobs, but it is also financially costly. It causes us to be less generous and more impoverished. The benefits are close to zero. A big key to freedom from any dependency is to unmask the false beliefs that hide in our minds. The physical dependency on any drug or any substance is real, but it's not as powerful as the spiritual power that is over us. There's a big theme throughout the Bible about believing the truth over the lie. Even since the very beginning of creation, the greatest question is, would the human race accept a distorted view of the world? Or would we see the world with God's wisdom and would we see the truth? And Jesus said that the truth will set you free. And that, of course, mostly means the truth of the gospel. But it also does mean the truth of honest confession. That is freeing. But also it does mean the truth of a matter as well. It can be applied in that way. And if our lives are built upon deceptions and false beliefs, they are insecure and can come crashing down. In verse 32, the author tells us the consequence of too much alcohol. It says, in the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. It's no mistake that it's paralleled, that the alcohol is paralleled with venomous snake poison. Overindulgence is like swallowing a snake down your throat with a scorpion chaser. We've essentially been brainwashed by our culture that we need lots of alcohol, or that alcohol helps us, or that we deserve it, or that another drink is always okay. Yet the benefits, when we use our minds to consider them, are close to zero. How much, therefore, is too much alcohol? Now, it's, it's hard and perhaps unhelpful to come up with a rule for everyone, uh, but I would say that a healthy quantity is a lot lower than most people think. It only takes really a small amount, a tiny bit of alcohol to have a gladdened heart, to, you know, to feel relaxed and feel merry. 
And it's not just those who tarry long over wine. In verse 30, it says that also those who go to try mixed wine. Now, this is kind of another level to this, that some, not all, but some, may think that mixing and adding and getting very sophisticated with alcohol is just a hobby. For some it might be, but not admitting if that hobby actually supports a dependency. The truth is that most alcohol by itself doesn't actually taste good. You actually have to mix it to cover up the, the bad flavor. And the first time anyone tries alcohol, they don't really like it. Uh, but many pretend that they do because, well, that's what you're supposed to do, right? That's the brainwashing. And if you do drink, then let me ask you, the next time you drink, pay attention. Consider what flavors you're actually tasting and enjoying. And this is especially true, of course, of spirits and hard alcohol. It's really the sugar and the fruits that we like. The reason that it doesn't taste good by itself is because it's a concentrated toxin. Our bodies have an inbuilt safety measure to alert us to things that aren't good for us. And one of those inbuilt measures is this tastes bad. So like biting into a bad apple, it's a bad taste, but just like that. But when we, so when we force ourselves though, over time to acquire a taste for something, we essentially end up brainwashing ourselves that, and, and, our, and our taste buds adapt to it. And we say, well, I know I have a craving for this. And I've personally drunk enough alcohol for four lifetimes. And I finally got sick of drinking, honestly. And the older I got, I just, I really couldn't really take it anymore. And I actually used COVID-19 to overindulge early on. Remember those days when everyone was running to the stores to buy copious amounts of alcohol? Uh, but I, I knew my usage wasn't positive and it was too frequent and too much. And personally, I had wanted to actually give up alcohol for a long time uh, for both health reasons, but also for spiritual reasons. But I could never quite do it. And the thing that actually pushed me over the edge uh, was a book that I actually read uh, titled The Easy Way to Control Alcohol by Alan Carr. And God actually really used that book. It's not particularly a Christian book, but it, there, are, there are Christian principles in that book. And God really used that and it clicked. And I actually vowed to never drink again and have my last drink actually. And I haven't had anything since uh, June of 2020. And in the Bible, uh, we actually have two models we can follow and both are valid. So we have Jesus who drank in moderation. That's one model. But also we have John the Baptist who was abstinent. And I'm personally now following that model. And it's not right or a wrong thing. Uh, the key for both approaches is this, is do I have power over my decisions or does something have power over me? Looking at these verses in Proverbs, it hit me that drinking less or not drinking at all, isn't a sacrifice. Don't miss this. We talked about this last week, actually, as it relates uh, to pornography, but it also relates to alcohol. To go without alcohol for long periods or for the rest of our lives or just to drink in moderation, that's not a sacrifice. Instead, it's actually a delight. Look at this verse in, in verse 31. You know, verse 31, it says, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down 
smoothly. These verses are describing the alluring temptations associated with overindulgence. You know, the look of the bottle, the color of the liquid, the shimmer and sparkle that makes it look like a party in a glass, how it feels as it goes down the throat, smooth and potent. When we believe that that's something really important that makes our lives better, that it's so valuable to us, it's hard to say no to it because that level of sacrifice seems impossible. Sacrifice is difficult. Don't look at the potent color as an object of desire. Don't get enchanted by the sparkle. Don't lust after the smooth sensation. Those things are illusions. See them for what they are. Yes, it seems to promise so much, but on the back end of overindulgence, if we're honest, we know it can be venomous. The true loss is to not be in control. The true loss is to live in a delusion. There is no sacrifice, none whatsoever, in moderating or rejecting a toxin. There's no sacrifice in rejecting a toxin. If you have a dependency, pour your alcohol away today. Are you ready for true joy and elation and freedom? Instead of a drink, take a walk. Embrace friends and family. Read a book. Serve a need. Share grace. Shine the light of day. Follow Jesus. The only person wiser than Solomon in the Bible is Jesus. And in Jesus, we have a Savior who celebrated with wine, but was never intoxicated. And on the cross, Jesus was offered two wines, one mixed with myrrh, presumably to dull the pain, and secondly, a very different kind of wine, a sour wine of the people, which had the effect of hydration in order to sustain him on the cross. Jesus rejected the first wine, but drank the second. Jesus chose to endure the full punishment of our sin in order to completely set us free. He didn't dilute the pain or distract himself from the pain. Jesus is the one who can set you free. Trust in him today. Let's have the band come back up. Let's respond today. We actually have those new Connect cards that we've been using. And I actually want to ask every person to complete one of those and turn it in every week. Uh, we want to get a prayer request from you to help people take next steps. And that helps us know how to pray and how to connect with you. Also, whether you plan to use it or not, go ahead and turn that giving envelope back in as well. The offering baskets will be coming around to collect all of those things. And if you didn't get one of those or you're joining us online, you can complete a digital connect card by texting the word enjoy to 94,000. So today, if you're under the grip of alcohol or something else, today, make a decision, make a determination, get help, respond, talk to somebody about it, get prayer. And now we're going to sing and worship. We're going to turn our attention to Jesus and celebrate him. So let's stand and let's worship together.